Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. With the final days of the 2021 federal election campaign winding down, how did the key parties fare? Both Jugmeet Singh of the NDP and the People's Party of Canada's Maxime Bernier seem to steal the spotlight from their primary political rivals. For insight into the steps, missteps, and what's going on behind the scenes of this tight election race, we turn to conservative strategist Jenny Byrne, the CEO of Jenny Byrne and Associates, and liberal strategist Scott Reed, a principal at Festchuck Reed. We began by talking about the evaporation of the lead the Liberals enjoyed prior to the election call. I first asked Scott, would he have advised the PMO to put it off? I wouldn't have advised him differently in terms of calling the election other than to have had the election weeks earlier. And I know that runs counter to the expectation of many. The condemnation has been all about, well, why have an election at all? He should have waited. He could have had an election next year. I think you can't count on positive conditions persisting forever and ever and I think that the, there was a window I think that the liberals went relatively late into that window they called it this in July they might have had better prospects but look there's still an onus that is on you as the prime minister no matter when you call it to explain why you're calling it and not why you're calling it for you but why you're calling it in terms of the public interest what policies cannot be pursued unless you get a clear mandate from the people and I think it was the failure to do that in regardless of when he called it I think it was the failure to do that crisply on day one that caused him 10 days of trouble yeah I agree I think that if the uh if the prime minister had called the election the end of June 1st of July it would have been a much different uh uh, it would have been a much different ball game for him, but I think that uh, they waited to the last possible moment uh, they could, uh, probably because they wanted to get a bunch of those childcare deals out and announced with the uh, provinces. And I'm not sure it was probably worth the uh, uh, worth that uh, to see where they're in now. I think that if 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 we were having this conversation two months ago and uh, we were sitting kind of in a having a dogfight with the polls uh, pretty much tied nationally, we'd probably be pretty shocked. So then was this the biggest mistake that the Liberal Party made during the campaign, calling it when they called it? Not in my opinion. Uh, I, and I, I do think they could have chosen a better time, but I, I still think it comes back to you've got to tell people what's at stake. You've got to tell people why you're calling the election. And, and, and really, the timing of the election fits within a context. If the election had been called a month earlier, the election would have been called. But instead, they spent five, six weeks telling people that an election was coming. And so cynicism was allowed to brew. And that meant that there was a higher price placed on an explanation that was in the public interest as opposed to just taking it for granted that people would be cool with it. So I, 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 it just comes back to the fundamental point, which is that if you're going to call an election, you need to explain why. So then what was the biggest mistake that was made over the course of this campaign? It's kind of following up on Scott's point. They weren't ready. So when you're in government and you're in a minority and you, you don't fall, you're deci- you've decided to go into an election, you're usually prepared. We, the, the Harper government, we did that in 2008. Uh, we, 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 we called the election on Labor Day and we knew we were going into it. We were ready to go. Seemingly, the Liberals, although they spent uh, five weeks co- leading up to it, getting people acclimatized to the fact there was going to be an election, when the actual election started, they actually seemed almost flat-footed, like they weren't expecting it. They were they were late out of the gate in terms of uh, any form of narrative, form of announcements, and it was only kind of into going into like week two and a half, three that they actually kind of got their uh, got their footing back. 
What would you have done differently? Well, I think they committed the cardinal sin of assuming that people would be cool with an election that was about thanking the government for what they've done, as opposed to having a combat and a contest about what we're going to do. And from the platform, which is a nuts-to-soup, gigantic spending formula of everything, to their soft answers at the beginning on why we're having an election, to their advertising, which said that they're going to be relentless, whatever in hell that means. Uh, they just didn't have you know, that fundamental argument that it surpassed the notion of, well, we've done a good job in the pandemic and um, maybe you'd like to give us a pat on the back in the form of a majority. And that, that, that was the big mistake. Jenny, let's flip it to you. Um, if you were running this conservative election campaign, what would you have done differently? Well, I think part of the problem that the conservatives have in terms of not being able to uh, to gain traction uh, on the liberals more so than what one would expect is twofold. I think uh, one, uh, they're running a platform that's extremely similar in terms of most policy uh, policy aspect, aspects. There, there, there. There's no light in between uh, the liberals and the conservatives. And even throughout the course of the election campaign, there's been attacks on the conservatives, and they've kind of backed off and said, no, 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 we're the same as uh, same as the other guy from from what you would call hot button issues like guns to uh, spending. The conservative platform is t uh, is spending 22 billion dollars more in their projections than what the liberal plan does. Plan has. And that hasn't even accounted for their um, uh, that hasn't even accounted for their version of the uh, of the carbon tax. I think they've also uh, underestimated uh, if the, if they've made a mistake, they've underestimated the rise of the PPC. It, it's definitely uh, something that uh, is looking uh, both in the both that you factor in in the polls as well on the ground. If you're talking to candidates or if you if you're knocking on doors, there is something uh, with the People's Party uh, that was not there in the last election. But is it a big mover? You know, the, the latest numbers, at least Nanos is telling us that they're no more than 10 percent of, of the vote at this point, whereas you might look at the NDP and what it's polling at this point and its impact on the Liberals will be substantially greater than what the PPC would have on the Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, I don't agree with that. So I think that if you look at the PPC support, I think there are probably about 25% that are disaffected uh, Green Party members, NDP, the group of people that haven't voted. But 75% of, of that, I would say, uh, are actually coming from the conservative, uh, the conservative vote pool. And if you're sitting as the conservatives, if you're sitting at 31 or 32%, uh, you add 7% uh, to 32 and you're at 39%, uh, which is essentially uh, what we won a majority with in 2011. So I think that uh, I think that to dismiss the PPC as not a factor in this election at this point, it would be a mistake for the Conservative Party. That national number of 8, 9, 10 percent doesn't necessarily give us the full uh, insight as to how significant it is in certain regions, and I would say even sub-regions. So if you talk about, you know, and Jenny and I were talking about this this morning, you talk about southwestern Ontario, they could be running a hell of a lot higher than 10%, and that's going to that's gonna affect how the splits go. Same thing in Quebec, in rural Quebec, and we're in the Beauce outside of Quebec City. They could have a substantial effect, and their number could be much larger than 8 or 9%. The other thing is, um, that's what do you fear most when you're running a campaign? You fear unexpecteds. Right. The NDP vote being between 17 and 20 percent is what you expect if you're the Liberal Party. Of course, you want to get it as low as possible. Of course, in the final days of the campaign, you want to try to collapse that and convert as many of those votes as possible. But that's an expected thing. If you're running the Conservative campaign, you know, the, the People's Party is not expected to be running at 10 or 11 percent. And it's not expected in some of those ridings that we were talking about earlier to be running at what? What will it be? 15 percent, 18, 19, 20 percent? Those are not things that you planned on on day one.
Jenny, I'm surprised that you would say that you think maybe one in four people who are going to support the PPC would come from the NDP or, or the Green Party. It would be my assumption that these would be people siphoned off from the right, not the left. I think what we're seeing in terms of, I think people that are, are upset about uh, vaccine passports, mandatory vaccines, I think it's a cross-section of, uh, of all parties. I don't think it's ideological. And so I think that if you've got people that are, are driven by that or driven by being kind of an outsider, I think it's, it, crosses, it crosses party lines. I don't think it's an ideological thing. It's not a right-left a right thing. And then I think you have some conservatives, when we're, we're talking about conservatives, they may be concerned about that, but they're also concerned about a carbon tax. They're also concerned about... Uh, uh, I, you know, the, the difference between uh, what Aaron ran on in the leadership uh, as, as opposed to what he's running in now. I already mentioned the, 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 the cost of, uh, of the platform. And so I think that there is a whole host of issues why uh, the PPC might be organically uh, gaining steam. They're an alternative for people who are genuinely not happy with any of, of the above. So then what's the impact of O'Toole's decision to oppose vaccine mandates by stating it's a personal health decision? What is that going to mean for the voters when they go to the polls? Well, I'll start by saying, uh, Scott and I, we've had a lot of conversations about this over the course of the uh, election campaign. I think for Aaron, uh, unfortunately, he's, it's the worst of all, all worlds for him is because uh, although he's he's not supportive of vaccine uh, mandatory vaccines uh, in terms of he's 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 had to answer questions about his candidates not being vaccinated and what have you. He also has supported uh, Justin Trudeau in terms of a vaccine pa a vaccine a Canadian vaccine passport. So 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 you're not really on one side of the issue or not. You're trying to literally hug both sides and. Uh, uh, sometimes when you try to be all things to all people, uh, you're nothing uh, to the people you want. Uh, you make uh, everyone uh, angry. There's nothing worse when you're in a campaign when you literally cannot be as clear as you'd like. And and the reason there's a lack of clarity on, on the Conservatives' part when it comes to vaccine passports is they are trying to uh, straddle a fence. And that fence has become higher and sharper in its edges uh, during the campaign as the PPC has risen in support. He can't say he'll take a strident uh, position uh, along the lines of Trudeau because that will further drive voters to the PPC, or at least there's a risk of it if you're running their campaign. You can't afford that risk. And neither can you come whole hog on uh, the other side of it because you're going to push away moderate conservative voters and, and uh, independent voters that you've been desperately trying to woo in order to actually push yourself into a position of a plurality of seats. So you are in that awful no man's land of being pinned between two things. And that's when your opponents love to put the magnifying glass over you and just let you sizzle. Was there any sizzle during the de debates? You know, Nano says there was a jump in liberal support following the back-to-back -back debates. Was there? Was it, what was the trigger? Well, I think the defining moment uh, uh, for for the first part of the first debate, the Tavia debate, uh, came uh, in terms of the back and forth on uh, on gun control. It came fairly late in the debate, and uh, it was the beginning of kind of the resurgence of the liberals uh, in it, it, it kind of getting getting footing. Uh, it was uh, Trudeau holding up the platform and saying, "On page ninety, Aaron O'Toole, uh, you talk about." Uh, removing the OIC on the, the guns that the uh, Liberal government uh, uh, said they were going to ban uh, in 2020. And uh, what that turned into is, of course, the Conservative Party uh, reversing their position, putting an asterisk in their platform and saying they actually weren't going to uh, revoke the, uh, the, the decision to um, 
uh, to to ban these guns, they were going to review it. And I think that uh, that was one of the uh, the turning points in terms of the uh, in terms of the election. And I know Scott and I have talked about the turning point kind of in the English election uh, English debate. So I'll let him take that. I don't I won't steal all of it. <laughs> well, I agree with Jenny a lot. I think that uh, people overlook it, particularly in English Canada, about the significance of the TVR debate. I think that it altered the rhythm of the campaign in a way that really harmed O'Toole and gave uh, and, and gave a needed rebound uh, to the Liberals. You saw their numbers go up in Ontario after you had four, five, six days of gun talk. It really helped them, um, helped the Liberals. You know, the, the two sanction debates, the two commission debates, if you will, I mean, you know, the French debate went off, I think, relatively uneventful. I think Trudeau did okay. I don't know that anybody won the debate. The TV, uh, the, the second, the English language debate was like, I, it was just a train wreck in my view. Format, moderated, uh, the way the moderator managed it. I just think it was a disaster. And I think it, it, it was a poor debate that Trudeau handled poorly. Um, but, you know, what some pollsters are telling us, and I think is an interesting observation is that it, the greatest impact of that English language debate might have been the question about racism in Quebec or bias in Quebec. I don't think anybody actually used the word racism, so I'll be careful. But, you know, talked about Bill 21, Quebec, and it set off and triggered. If you notice the next day, all parties in English and in French were talking about that question and that issue. So if you see all the parties doing something in both languages, you can be darn certain that something's showing up in their numbers overnight, telling you that there's a challenge, there's an issue, there's an opportunity there. And I think maybe we may find that in retrospect, um, the biggest impact of the English debate was that it uh, kicked off uh, an ugly debate in in uh, Quebec that may have helped uh, rally national sentiment, national sentiment around the block. Yeah, it's it's weird. You had the French, you had the French debate that actually affected the uh, English Canada uh, more, and the English debate that affected Quebec more. I, I don't think probably that's ever happened uh, before in Canadian history. It's beautiful. It's hands across the cultures. <laughs> <laughs> the Global Mail's Ian Brown writes that regardless of who won the leaders' debate, Canadian voters were the losers. Oh, that I'll be honest. The the English debate was was hard to watch. I I cons I love politics. I consume it for fun, um, and I had a very hard time uh, uh, getting my head into that uh, into that debate. It was it was a very hard one to watch from not just the topics and the. The, the weirdness of the moderator and the reporters uh, seemingly trying to become part of the debate themselves, uh, but there was no mechanism to actually watch the, the leaders uh, go up, be able to interact with each other, be able to debate each other. And I think that's what Canadians want it to, want it to see. I'm in full agreement. And I know this is kind of settled into be conventional wisdom, but sign me up for conventional wisdom in this case. Like I think that it was an awful terrifyingly bad format that was severely moderated and as a result it was almost unwatchable and uh i just i just thought it was a complete disservice it was so brutal i hope that they take that format drive it out into the woods kick open the car door give it some berries and a day of water and say see you later good luck getting your way back to civilization it was that bad we should never see it again would more Debates have made a difference. I don't think so. I think we had what five debates in the in the um, 
uh, in the 2015 election. Uh, we had four debates in the 2006 election. Uh, I'm not sure more debates would have made the difference. I just think a better format for debates would have made a difference. So have, have an English, have a French debate. And if you want to have the format that uh, the debate commission put up, especially for the English side of the debate, that's more of a, of a presser or an editorial board. So if that's what, what they think people want to see, make it an ed board, like make it an editorial board where all, the leaders all get, like the media can all sit around and pepper with them with questions for an hour because that's ultimately what it was. But it's, it's not a debate. Agreed. The one thing I would say is that more debates always introduce uh, the possibility of more slip ups. Right. So um, and and I think more debates tend to help uh, a competent opposition leader. Because you can present yourself as capable of holding the stage and people get to see you dressed up in that way more often. And that probably has a pernicious uh, negative effect on the incumbent. I was expecting that we would spend a fair portion of our time together talking about Jagmeet Singh and his threat to the Liberal Party. But we spent a lot more time talking about Maxime Bernier and his impact on the Conservatives. Is Singh a threat here? Crickets. Go ahead, Scott. Ah, uh, well, I mean, look, who knows? Um, that this is one of those things that in a close election, the tale will be told in the final days because one of three things is going to happen. Um, either the NDP vote will will pinch by three to four percent and it'll go to the liberals. And that's because in the next week, people will go. I'm hearing that this thing is really close and the conservatives might win. And there'll be that three, four percent that's parked with the NDP now that will go liberal in order to uh, solve that off. The NDP must stop that uh, or uh, it'll stay as it is, which I think is the least likely scenario. All right. Or it will increase um, that the liberals will lose uh, steam and, and the NDP will gain. What has not happened is movement during the campaign. Singh has maintained his position as someone that Voters find appealing. He has not had any success in the first four of these five weeks of campaigning in translating that appeal into votes. And I think that that augurs very badly for him in the last week of the campaign. I think it's far more likely that his roses are going to get plucked by the liberals than he's going to um, expand his garden, shall we say, to maintain the metaphor. Yeah, I, I, agree. I agree. And actually, I think there's a there's another factor that uh, uh, that, that people don't realize is the Green Party, uh, not only have they decreased support depending on, on what polls anywhere is from two to 4% lower nationally than what they were in the last election, they're not running candidates in 85 ridings. And that's significant because if you look at some of those ridings, they're ridings where, uh, the, where they got double digits. For example, in the riding of West Nova in Nova Scotia, the Conservatives won with, I think, 39% of the vote. The Liberals had... 36% of the vote. The Green Party came in third with 13% of the vote. So those 13% of people that voted for the Green Party, they're going to have to choose where to go. And sure, we talked about maybe there'll be a handful of people that go to the uh, to the uh, uh, People's Party, uh, but the vast majority, I think, are going to be looking at the Liberals and probably looking at the NDP. And if and I think that in terms of strategic voting point of view, and I'm not, I don't get into the strategic voting a lot, but I think in terms of this, you have 13% of people who are probably going to look uh, look uh, seriously at the Liberal Party. So it's going to affect seats across the country. There are seats that are affected in like Atlantic Canada, Ontario, and especially in the lower mainland of BC um, that I think people aren't reading into the fact that there is there is no green option. People are going to show up at their polling stations uh, either you know, they have or will today or on election day, and they're not going to have an, an option to vote green. So they're going to have to decide where they go next. So then paint a picture for us. 
What's going on behind the scenes in these final days? Well, you start, Jenny. You were the campaign manager. You're the field marshal. <laughs> now it's coming down to you've still got messages. We've seen all the leaders out. This is now ground operations. This is where you are moving all of your resources and all your attention uh, into making sure that you get your identified vote um, uh, to the polls. And so that is that's the focus of uh, what all of the campaigns uh, should be doing, or the, the the focus of the majority of people working on campaigns. You've still got it. There's still communications. There's still you know, tour to work on. There's there's still other stuff to work on, but the vast majority, the most important thing that campaigns should be working on now uh, is taking place locally, riding by riding by riding. For sure. Tight election. Um, you need all of your focus uh, that's not around the leader and on the tour uh, dedicated to um, making sure you get every vote out of every possible riding where it matters. Um, in terms of the tour and in terms of the leaders, I, I, I think we're at one of those points and we're in one of those kinds of campaigns where you've got a Tudder guy campaign, right? You want to make as many days about the other guy. The other guy is not doing good. The other guy's got a problem. The other guy is having to answer questions. Um, you know, I can remember in 2004, um, we had this weird thing in the final week of the election campaign. And, you know, Jenny and I were working on opposite sides in that campaign. And our view was our view was bloodless uh, as the Liberal Party. Our view was if they're talking about us, we'll lose. If they're talking about them, we'll win. And we wanted to keep the shoe on the other foot. I think this might be one of those kinds of campaigns. Final thoughts then. And Scott, I want your thought first here um, on the idea that Canadians do not vote for conservatives. They vote out liberals. I don't know that that's uniformly true. Um, I mean, 30 to 33 percent of people are going to very actively and enthusiastically vote for the Conservative Party. Um, it's going to be that swing vote. Uh, liberals have an easier time in Canada, by and large, in terms of having a higher group of people that are notionally within their base and a little bit easier time appealing to those folks who are independent or swing voters than the conservatives do but i i don't think you know the math jenny's far better place than i am to say this but it seems to me the lesson in history is that that the conservatives um they need to mobilize all their voters very actively because they do have those folks and then they need to run a campaign that permits them to also pick up four more percent and if, when they do that they win and when they don't they lose with, you know, 29 to 34% and and they're on the opposition bench. I think that uh, uh, there can be change elections. This isn't one of them. Uh, and I don't think it's accurate to say that, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that conservatives are, uh, conservatives win by default when people are sick of the liberals. Let's not forget over the last 20 years, uh, conservatives have governed for the majority of that time. Stephen Harper was uh, prime minister of Canada winning three elections for a decade. Thank you so much for your time and insight, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a ton. Lots of fun. Scott Reed is a principal at Festchuck Reed. Jenny Byrne is the CEO of Jenny Byrne and Associates. Still to come from a physically distant CD Howe, on September 23rd, the Fed on a tightrope, inflation, growth, and the future of U.S. monetary policy. A webinar with Dr. William Dudley, the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And October 4th, John Graham, the President and CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute Podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. 
The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and insight, guys. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Shell, Shell uh, you seem uh, caught off guard by my sudden wrap-up of the conversation, so I'll, I'll do that again. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and insight. <laughs> we didn't even work. <laughs> Jesus. We didn't see it coming, Michael. I swear to God. Jenny? <laughs> Not the second Whoa. time, even. All right, Jenny, then Scott. Third time's a charm. Scott, Jenny, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thanks a ton. Lots of fun. Thanks so much for having us. Awesome. We nailed it.